0: Good afternoon, colleagues. Uh, my name is Richard McCallum. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, the journal for the American Federation of Medical Research. And it's my pleasure every month, sometimes maybe twice a month, to conduct a podcast where we talk about a topic that overlaps many disciplines, uh, a generic topic that can be uh related to medical education, new articles in the journal, hot topics, um, important changes that uh, affect the practice of medicine. And in the past few months, I've been um, moving it around uh, from, I saw hepatitis C we did recently, um, uh, cannabis-related issues, so-called cyclic vomiting Mm. syndrome and cannabis related GI problems, I mean, very topical area. Uh, We've looked at diversity and inclusion in uh, faculties at medical schools, very controversial issue about racial sensitivity. Um, This particular um, podcast, I've decided to take advantage of the fact that we have many experts writing great articles um, in our journal. Journal of Investigative Medicine, and we're fortunate this month, uh, which is about to be published online, I think by Friday, uh, today is the 21st, so later this week in September, uh, you'll see this article um, in, the, in the journal uh, called Advances in the Management of Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension. Uh, Dr. Hermanshu Deshwal is the first author. And he has his collaborators and colleagues, his mentor, uh, Dr. Roxana Saluka. Um, and they're at New York University Grossman School of Medicine, uh, Pulmonary Sleep and Critical Care Medicine. And we're fortunate to have with us uh, the first author of that paper, uh, Dr. Manshu Dashwal, today. Um, as a brief background. Um, uh, I'm from Australia, so uh, we're discussing Dr. Deshwal's background in India, Uh, the fact that uh, we'd like to beat India more frequently in cricket, but it's getting harder. Uh, He's a football enthusiast as well, so he's got some other other interests, shall we say. Grew up in India, went to um, the Armed Forces Medical College, graduated there at Pune, India, went on to do a residency in the Cleveland Clinic Foundation and then moved to his pulmonary fellowship, pulmonary disease and critical care at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine where he's roughly uh, 60% of the way through his fellowship and he informs me that he has plans to stay on an academic medicine and be you know one of the future leaders and that's you know, one of the goals of our podcast is to bring um, new potential faculty into the arena, uh, introduce them uh, to our membership, and um, give them give them an option to have a, a voice or a podium uh, to discuss their work. So it's a great pleasure to have you uh, with us, uh, Dr. Dashwal, today. Uh,
1: good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dr. McCullum. It's an honor. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me on this podcast. So,
0: as I was thinking about this, um, we wanted a very sort of new topic or different topic than recently, but it's certainly one that I see getting a lot of press. I'm in El Paso, Texas. I do I see a lot of scleroderma, which obviously gets involved with pulmonary artery hypertension, pulmonary fibrosis. And... Um, I discuss it with my pulmonary colleagues and I've been impressed lately that there seems to be some new enthusiasm, a new energy level um, of interest to try to help these patients, which in the past has been a very difficult challenge. So maybe I could ask you a very broad question as a bit of an amateur, if you like. Um, but we, we see a lot of definitions and perhaps redefinitions of pulmonary hyper- hypertension um, and the sort of hemodynamic ramifications, which are very crucial in, in planning therapy. Well, why don't you give me a little sort of update on, on how you explain some of the new hemodynamic uh, definitions of pulmonary hypertension? Yes.
1: Yeah, so the Sixth World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension uh, updated the hemodynamic definitions of uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension and all the other phenotypes uh, based on more logical reasonings and recent evidence. Um, so they reduced the mean pulmonary artery pressure from 25 to 20 and uh, pulmonary vascular resistance of more than three woods unit uh, as a cutoff and then using the pulmonary artery wedge pressure, which is an estimate of the left uh, ventricular and diastolic pressure, uh, less than 15 to say that this is uh, a vascular pulmonary vascular disease. And the rationale behind this is uh, quite simple, actually. So, physiologically, the mean pulmonary artery pressure in a healthy individual is around 14 millimeters of mercury. And to call it a disease state, uh, a two standard deviation above the 14 millimeters of mercury comes around 20 millimeters of mercury. Uh, and that's why the definition uh, was dropped to 20. In addition to that, also there are certain entities where, you know, on an initial right heart catheterization, the patient may have uh, a mean pulmonary artery pressure between 20 to 25 uh, and was previously not uh, diagnosed as pulmonary hypertension, but would increase their pressures on exercise. And so uh, eventually patients with exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension or patients who fall in this category between 20 to 25 were found to have uh, similar outcomes as far as morbidity and mortality was concerned. And I think uh, that was one rationale to uh, drop the mean PA pressures uh, from 25 to 20. The other thing was, uh, you know, identifying the disease early on to prevent vascular remodeling, the right ventricular remodeling and potentially improve uh, survival and outcomes.
0: Well, you know, as I read your paper through, um, I was obviously, you utilize or rely a lot on the uh, on um, the right heart catheterization uh, that you do during um, invasive uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, and you talk about the traditional uh, six-minute walking test, which I guess has been around quite a while, so why don't you update me as an amateur on the role of this uh, invasive cardiopulmonary exercise testing, how it compares to the six-minute walk, and where are we going in that in that evaluation
1: yes so six minute walk test uh, is is a phenomenal test and we use it all the time in clinical practices as our endpoints in clinical trials and even to prognosticate in certain risk stratifying models uh, the inherent so as any other test it has its inherent drawbacks and benefits um so it's a very easy to do test and gives us a rep estimate of the functional capacity or uh, gives us a functional assessment of the patient. However, uh, there are certain young patients who come in with really bad pulmonary vascular disease, like pulmonary hypertension or, and right heart failure, but being young, they have a better exercise capacity. So sometimes their six-minute walk test may be over 500 meters, uh, but their hemodynamics may be really bad. So sometimes it can give us an inaccurate assessment of how bad their disease is, which may potentially lead to delay in therapy. Additionally, there are certain patients like connective tissue disease, as you mentioned, scleroderma, uh, and some other connective tissue diseases like polymyositis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, They may have other reasons to have functional limitations, like uh, joint diseases, like cardiovascular diseases, like diaphragmatic weaknesses. And so uh, they may have dyspnea and uh, you know, functional limitation, which may falsely decrease, or not falsely, but like decrease their six minute walk test more than uh, because of pulmonary hypertension. So in that situation, a cardiopulmonary exercise testing becomes very imperative because it gives us an accurate assessment where that dyspnea or functional limitation is originating from. So uh, even now, uh, the newer trials are targeting certain parameters that we observe on cardiopulmonary exercise testing. The invasive cardiopulmonary exercise testing is a a relatively new uh, procedure or a new assessment that uh, is still investigational, but a lot of uh, places have uh, utilized it to identify dyspnea and hence the origin of certain uh, places that call called dyspnea clinics and it's not fairly limited to pulmonary hypertension itself but in general uh it's it's a clinic that tries to focus on identifying the cause of the symptoms that the patient is experiencing and so the way they do it is they do right heart catheterization mm-hmm. and while the catheter is uh in they perform exercise testing with uh, measuring uh, non invasively all the cardiopulmonary exercise testing uh, parameters and it can give us a, a a variety of information, right from the hemodynamics to the derived uh, variables and other things uh, that can very accurately and precisely tell us which is the predominant disease state or which is the predominant limitation that the patient is experiencing. So it not only gives us prognostication, but also gives us an uh, idea and an approach how we can best treat it. So for example, If a patient with scleroderma comes in as they have restrictive cardiomyopathy and pulmonary vascular disease, and we have them on pulmonary vasodilators, and uh, their right heart catheterization shows near normalization of hemodynamics, but they're complaining of significant uh, limitation in their exercise, uh, complaining of shortness of breath, their six minute walk test is low. So I think this test could be pretty useful in identifying cardiovascular disease or peripheral deconditioning uh, in that situation. So, I think uh, that's where it may have a a lot of promise in the future.
0: So, with the uh, catheter in place, uh, these patients are doing some degree of exercise?
1: Yes. It's mostly on an ergometer, like a a cycle with a graded exercise uh, monitoring.
0: And are we measuring the O2 as well? Is O2 saturation still important, or is is it all based
1: on vascular dynamics? So, so there are multiple things that are being measured in uh, invasive CPETs and here at NYU, we are uh, about to start this procedure. We, we take uh, a lot of uh, mentorship from other programs that have already established like Harvard. Um, and so essentially what you do is uh, with the right heart catheterization in there, we do a resting uh, measurements of the pulmonary hemodynamics, like the mean pulmonary artery pressure, cardiac output um, and other things. And then uh, we transfer the patient to this uh, uh, to the cycle, and then we increase uh, the graded exercise, and then we measure the hemodynamic effects of that. In between, we also look at the mixed venous oxygen saturations, how they are impacted. Uh, we look at the right atrial pressures, because sometimes patients may have uh, small fiber neuropathy, which can cause uh, peripheral vasodilations and decrease your preload, um, and so which otherwise would be normal, but it does not go like right atrial pressure may not go above eight millimeters of mercury. Uh, and as a result, de- decrease your cardiac output. So, so, those patients, rather than having a cardiovascular or pulmonary disease, have more peripheral vascular disease, uh, like a, uh, with dilation because of small fiber neuropathy. Um, so, those are the things that we can measure. And then the cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So, we can measure the O2 pulse that correlates with your mixed venous uh, and your cardiac output. And uh, we can measure the uh, you know physiological death space equivalents uh, we can look at the oxygen consumptions and anaerobic thresholds and we can correlate these to tease out exactly where the problem is is there a problem in the pulmonary vasculature is there a problem in uh, augmentation of cardiac output because of cardiomyopathy or is this a problem which is more peripheral maybe deconditioning or small fiber neuropathy
0: um Also reading through your article uh, uh, there, if you moved into therapy, I came across a lot of um, names that I don't think about every day. Um, Some of them I see uh, are all friends, uh, Phil, and all that uh, might be uh, okay, but you've got a lot of other ones. I guess some are given intravenously as I recall, maybe even Mm -hmm. um, as a continuing infusion. So why don't you update me a little bit about um, some of the recent highlights at least, or some of the categories uh, or subdivisions for your um,
1: conventional or your new pharmacotherapy? Yes, so uh, to put it very simply, uh, the targets for treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension relies predominantly on the three existing pathways that we know of and that we can target. So the first is the nitric oxide pathway, and that's where all the uh, five inhibitors such as Tadalafil, Tadalafil acts. Then you have soluble guanyl cyclase stimulator like Rio-Sigwai. Uh, so they, ba- they both act through uh, nitric oxide pathway. Then we have the endothelin receptor agonists like mesotentin and brisentin. Um, and those are another pathways that lead to pulmonary vasodilation. Uh, they also have impacts on uh, platelet mediation and preventing remodeling. And then the third and the major pathway is the prostacyclin pathway. And that's where most of the pro- prostacyclin analogs and prostacyclin mediated uh, pathways work like epoprostenol, uh, triprostinil, and then the newer pathways which are non-prostanoid uh, prostacyclin agonists like selexipec uh, and Well-in-a-peg. Uh What's interesting is there are newer drugs that are being developed uh, like uh, sotatercept. A recently concluded uh, PULSAR trial showed uh, hemodynamic benefits of this uh, therapy. And there are certain other tests, uh, other trials that are ongoing to validate those. Uh, and it's, uh, it acts on a TGF-beta, that's the uh, pathway where it can affect uh, on the bone morphogenetic factor, the BMPR2 mutations. So patients who have genetic uh, predisposition to pulmonary hypertension uh, and pulmonary vascular remodeling, so this drug could be uh, promising in that sense to prevent that and uh, what's interesting is it's not only about monotherapy the the most interesting and exciting part about the advances in primary hypertension is the combination therapies mm-hmm. so early diagnosis with the newer definitions early initiation of aggressive therapy most likely combination therapy and then uh, upfront sometimes triple therapy in advanced cases of uh, who that's the world health organization fun- functional class 3 and 4 Uh, may lead to improvement in hemodynamics and even right ventricular remodeling um, and eventually lead to improved outcomes. And looking at the the current trends in pulmonary hypertension, we see that um, the survival, at least the one-year survival has increased from 1980s uh, where it was 65% to roughly 86 to 90%. And the long-term survival has increased from 2.8 years to six years. And I think uh, a part of it needs to be attributed to early diagnosis, better screening tools, but also aggressive pharmacotherapy.
0: So uh, tell me a bit
1: about these endothelin receptor agonists. Well, what's what's their role? So endothelin receptor agonists is one of the major uh, oral therapies that we use. Um, And so they work on the endothelin pathway. So the pulmonary vasculature has endothelin-1 receptors, uh, which Basically, participate in uh, vasoconstriction. They can cause intimal hypertrophy, smooth muscle proliferation, and eventually can cause in situ thrombosis and plexiform lesions that we see in pulmonary hypertension. So, the endothelin receptor antagonists, what they do essentially is inhibit the endothelin one mediated pathways, thus preventing vasoconstriction. So, they could lead to vasodilation uh, and prevent uh, smooth muscle proliferation, essentially. So if given early on, uh, they may have a promise to prevent remodeling of the vasculature. So they're often used as a long-term therapy, usually in combination with uh, nitric oxide pathways, such as riociguat or um, Tadalafil, Selenophil. Um And uh, and they are fairly well tolerated as well, compared to other therapies.
0: So you're saying that you it sort of, if like can, in- GI, we have a condition called inflammatory bowel disease and and ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. And the teaching has been step-up therapy. You start with the ABCs and you add more powerful or more, um, I guess, aggressive treatments up the ladder um, in some sort of sequential uh, fashion. Mm -hmm. You're not perhaps implying as much of this sort of step-up therapy You're saying you may be using two or three things um, simultaneously. You may be doing combination therapy from the beginning.
1: Yeah, so it all depends on how uh, bad the disease is. So the current guidelines suggest you could do monotherapy in uh, WHO functional class 1 or mild disease. Mm -hmm. Um, But essentially, the idea is to uh, have multiple pathways affecting the disease covered. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ultimate goal is to prevent right ventricular failure and remodeling of the pulmonary vasculature. So the, the multiple pathways we utilize uh, through our pharmacotherapy, uh, the longer the outcome or the better outcomes uh, are what's suggested. And the earliest evidence that we have is from the ambition trial. And then following that, almost every trial that uh, have come through have used most of the pharmacotherapy as monotherapy or in combination with other therapies. Um, and has shown benefits in, uh, in hemodynamic outcomes and uh, functional outcomes and uh, time to disease progression. Uh, in fact, some of the uh, recent trials uh, that are looking at uh, basically outcome of combination therapies, like the Triton trial, where they use the Selexipeg, which is a non-prostanide prostacycline agonist with macetentin and tadalafil. Uh, the exploratory analysis of this trial did show that uh, there is some uh, long-term outcome improvement uh, in these uh, patients. And sometimes I I call the treatment of, uh, as my mentor, Dr. Solika says, uh, treatment of pulmonary hypertension needs a little bit of art, but also a lot of evidence. Um, And essentially knowing which uh, drug would best suit which phenotype of pulmonary hypertension uh, goes a long way. But in addition, uh, uh, acting on most uh, receptors Uh, and preventing remodeling uh, is is the way to treat uh, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, This is not a treatable disease, it's a manageable disease, so you cannot cure it, but Mm -hmm. you can manage it. And uh, that's what we are seeing in our current uh, research that we are doing clinical research. We're seeing patients who have survived 10 years, 11 years, uh, with a decent functional quality of life um, and a good functional outcome uh, with early aggressive therapies.
0: Yeah, one of the things I see, uh, particularly in the spleroderma, patient population is also um, the toll of malnutrition or the toll of um, sort of anorexia, some degree of muscle, muscle wasting, uh, sustaining, sustaining that sort of basic nutritional background. Is that a challenge you see in your patients? Yes.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, the scleroderma patients, uh, in that sense, are very challenging because even sometimes they will have pulmonary fibrosis, but will have true pulmonary vascular disease, and have gas. A, a lot of them have gastrointestinal uh, involvement, and in fact, uh, our cohort here, on an average, has a BMI of fifteen to twenty. So that clearly shows an evidence that there is a lot of malnutrition, a lot of uh, anorexia involved with it, um, and. Uh, in fact, when we start them on pharmacotherapy, we do see a, a good response to therapy and sometimes we'll see hemodynamic uh, normalization in these patients. However, um, they progress in their disease course as far as scleroderma, is concerned. so be it pulmonary fibrosis, be it failure to thrive, and that often leads to recurrent admissions and poor quality of life and eventual demise. Um, so we've had uh, certain patients where we are being able to achieve hemodynamic normalization through these pathways, but. Uh, the involvement of gastrointestinal tract uh, serves as a real challenge to manage. The other uh, point here to note is that certain oral prostacyclins uh, and prostacycline pathway in general have a lot of gastrointestinal side effects, diarrhea, uh, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Uh, And so that can further compound uh, their management. So it's a very complex uh, uh, management in these patients and uh, very tricky because uh, with the pre existing gastrointestinal involvement and then the side effects from the medication can pose a real challenge uh, to treat them sometimes. So, sometimes we are not able to uptight them to the optimal doses. Uh, sometimes you have to choose alternate therapies. Sometimes you have to switch them to parenteral therapies for better absorption. Um, so, it does provide a challenge, but they do uh, often respond to therapy as far as hemodynamics uh, of pulmonary vasculature is concerned.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned. Um reading some of your work that uh, you know the multidisciplinary approach is obviously as in many areas in medicine now um it it is the approach and that's uh these patients probably are a great example of uh, yeah uh having a lot of colleagues helping you yes absolutely uh, and most of these patients are on nighttime o2 or is that is that a given or is that not always a given
1: So not always, but depending on how bad the disease is. So if you have like, you know, a lot of patients have their diffusion uh, limitation in their lungs. Some have coexisting uh, pulmonary fibrosis, pulmonary involvement like sarcoid pulmonary hypertension or scleroderma. And so eventually a lot of these patients end up on oxygen uh, during daytime as well. And Mm -hmm. oxygen. so a lot of times we do have, uh, as you said, multidisciplinary involvement. So sleep medicine uh, goes a long way. Um, as far as optimizing their sleep apnea, they might have uh, heart failures with central sleep apneas. So optimizing that part, in addition, nutrition becomes a very important aspect. So a lot of pulmonary hypertension patients are iron deficient, vitamin D and vitamin C deficient. So having nutritional education uh, becomes important. And then a very close, uh, uh, you know, working with pharmacotherapy, pharmacists essentially becomes important to uh, educate the patient. Sometimes they're on these parenteral therapies. They have to manage the dosing, the device that, that is used to provide this continuous parenteral therapies, and then managing the site of insertion of these uh, devices uh, to prevent infections and optimal yeah. identification and troubleshooting. And then comes the uh, uh, specialty multidisciplinary, where uh, early involvement of lung transplant in patients who have uh, less than 10% survival in a year. Uh, gastroenterology in scleroderma and then cardiology as well, uh, if they have cardiovascular involvement.
0: So you're seeing some indications for lung transplant uh, in a select group with maybe relatively spared as far as uh, as fibrosis. You're doing a bilateral replacement or you're doing unilateral?
1: So um, this is usually a disease which uh, has an indication for bilateral lung transplants, um, mainly patients who have aggressive form of pulmonary hypertension, very rapid decline, Mm -hmm. uh, really high risk category where their risk uh, stratification scores are high, multiple admissions, and failure of uh, parenteral therapy and pharmacotherapy uh, is usually an indication for transplant. Uh, So early involvement uh, helps in uh, planning this better. Um, And it's usually bilateral uh, lung transplant with uh, plus minus heart lung transplant, depending on the extent of cardiovascular damage. Um, and remodeling.
0: how many centers are doing that pulmonary transplants, lung transplants? So
1: I think most uh, centers that do lung transplants have uh, a certain group of pulmonary hypertension patients uh, mm-hmm. that are being transplanted. So at NYU, by you, we do that as well.
0: What's your mortality rate for the average uh, annual annual survival rate for
1: pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, transplant. So. Yes, yeah, so a transplant. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, I think our our outcome has been pretty good. But as far as pulmonary hypertension group is concerned, at least uh, I particularly am looking at patients who've been on triple therapy. That's a combination therapy, mm. or have WHO functional class three. Um, and some of them have been diagnosed in 2001. Some have been diagnosed in 2007. And so at least the five to 10-year mortality that I've noticed in that cohort that I'm looking at roughly 150, 100 patients uh, has been 11 to 12%, which is phenomenal. Uh, That's pretty so, good. Yeah. So usually the mortality in this group is usually pretty high, but uh, at least in this high-risk group, we are seeing a, a decent mortality benefit. with the aggressive And therapy. Um, the economics, um, these are pretty fancy
0: medicines. Yes. Um, are they mainly sort of covered or do we have complicated experimental protocols or access to these medicines? Is
1: this uh, a challenge? It it is an extreme challenge. Um, As Dr. Sulika says, um, uh, the providing physician has to be authorized in uh, prescribing these medications. There's a big role of social workers and uh, financial aids uh, to support the patient because uh, some of these medications can be expensive. So we we work closely with specialty pharmacies, uh, pharmaceutical companies to provide uh, aids to the patient, and uh, uh, we sometimes have to enroll them in trials and other things for future therapies as well. Um, to and that that's where the multidisciplinary support comes in. So you have to have early involvement of specialty pharmacy, uh, getting in touch with uh, uh, you know their insurances, and that that in itself becomes a very big challenge. Yeah. providing these medications and the education, because uh, some of these medications have, uh, you know, three times a day routine, some are continuous, some are inhaled, which uh, may need to be done, uh, done like four times a day, six times a day. So a lot of challenge uh, involved with education and providing these and uh, uh, getting these medications.
0: Well, Dr. Dashwal, I very much appreciated this time. And I've, I've learned a lot, uh, very informative. Uh, you're very articulate and uh, obviously uh, very much up to date. Thanks for sharing. Uh, Thank you so much,
1: Dr. McCollum. Your background, back. We look, honor.
0: look forward to getting your article. Uh, I know it's been online, but we're going to see it officially um, in the journal in a couple of, in a, in a week or so. And uh, I wish you all the best during your fellowship. I, uh, I hope that you'll choose to stay in the academic world. It has a lot of, um, very positive long-term career uh, energy levels, and it's a great uh, it's a great um, profession as you know. And I hope you continue to be a leader in in your field. We wish you all the very best, and we hope you'll uh, continue to publish in uh, in in uh, the Journal of Investigative Medicine, uh, be at our meetings, and become a leader. We wish you all the very best.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. McCallum. It was an absolute honor to be here with you on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: We'll keep an eye on those uh, Spanish soccer teams. Uh, there is <laughs> a rumor. There is a rumor going around about a certain French team as well, but uh, <laughs> I, I won't tease you with that one. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right. Well, thanks again, uh, and Dr. Dashwell, and uh, say hello also to uh, Dr. Sluka for us, and uh, thank her for um, her um, mentoring of you and, her, and your team.
1: Thank you so much, Dr.
0: McCollum. Thank All the you. very best. Thank you. So colleagues, I think that will wrap up today's uh, very informative podcast. Um, I I hope you all enjoyed it. I learned a lot myself and we look forward to seeing you next month in October. All the very best. uh, Please look at all our podcasts. They're well listed in the journal, on the website. And um, I I think you'll find them very informative. Again, all the very best. This is uh, Dr. Richard McCallum, editor-in-chief John Investigative Medicine signing off for today. Goodbye.